0: to this BICOM podcast. I'm Sam, a research associate at BICOM, and today I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Paris. Jonathan is a London-based geopolitical analyst with a focus on the Middle East. He is a former fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, and he is currently a senior advisor at the Washington-based Chertoff Group. Jonathan, thanks for giving BICOM your time today. You're welcome. So it's just uh, come to one30 PM UK time on Thursday 5th November and the reason I say that is because we're still waiting the final results of the US presidential elections. Joe Biden is currently in the lead on around 250 electoral votes and is most likely to win but there's still a slim chance for President Trump to remain in the White House. Jonathan we'll come to the Middle East in a moment but let's start with what's going on in the US. It's a very close race. Has that surprised you?
1: Uh, yes it did. Um... When I woke up uh, yesterday morning, the day after the election day, I fully expected uh, Biden would have uh, the 270 electoral votes that you need uh, to become president. And he did not. Um, Florida, uh, Ohio, my home state, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio went uh, Republican. Um, A lot of these uh, states I, I had expected to go Democrat as part of a blue wave, and that didn't happen. Uh, So I was surprised, but then as the morning went on to the afternoon, you saw the comeback of of Biden precisely because of this new aspect of a COVID-era election, and that is mail-in voting. When you vote by mail, you probably uh, are, are less influenced by Trump's charisma and Biden's lack of charisma than if you vote in person after a rally or something. So the the mail-in vote was very much uh, Biden, and as they started counting mail-in votes in Michigan and Wisconsin, the lead of Trump became smaller and smaller, and then it 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 changed overnight. The race I'm watching is Nevada. I mean, is Arizona because Arizona, uh, the Trumpies say, has. Um, a lot of Republicans in-person voting to be counted in the Phoenix area. But I'm watching the numbers, and uh, after the new uh, data came out in the middle of the night this morning, early this morning, UK time, it still looked like um, Trump is behind by over 60,000 votes. So he's running out of votes to count. Uh, If he loses Arizona, I don't see how he gets there.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's let's close. assume that Biden will win. How do you think Trump's going to react over the coming days and weeks? Do you think he will leave quietly in January or or maybe even before? Or do you think, you know, he's likely to start a political crisis?
1: One hopes that uh, he will concede, but I I can't recall. I I lived in New York in the 80s, 70s, late 70s and 80s and and 90s. So I saw him in action uh, in, in New York as a businessman. And I've never seen him uh, act like a loser or concede a defeat. It's just not in his DNA. So I think the real question is whether he will signal to his supporters to come out uh, and protest and even protest violently. Uh, that's another question. But he himself will not be gracious in defeat. It's just not in his personality.
0: Let, let's turn to Middle East or your, um, your kind of your expertise. Um, obviously a lot lot of our listeners will be interested about kind of the impact the US election will have on Israel. What do you think will be the main differences for Israel with a Biden first term as opposed to a Trump second term?
1: I think the main difference will be in in Iran policy because I think that's where the difference has been clearly discussed by Biden's would-be advisors, although we don't know precisely who will be his advisors, uh, on the Middle East, on Iran. But the, the, the words that you're hearing is uh, maximum pressure, that is the Trump policy of maximum sanctions and no diplomacy with Iran's uh, regime is not working. It's not bringing Iran to the table and it could, it could lead to a war. So let's try diplomacy. So that's clearly the Biden approach. And the Trump approach says maximum pressure is working, we've got them contained, and we'll talk about the word containment later because I hear that from some of the more hawkish people in the Biden team, like Jake Sullivan. But we've got them contained, They're, they are suffering, and they will have to come to the table. So I think both in both cases, the expectation is, and it may not be right, but the expectation is Iran will come to the table. But in one case, uh, Iran will come and hold out for a better deal, namely with the Biden team, because they expect the Biden team not to be so tough at the table. And in the other case with Trump, they they expect it to be uh, a tougher negotiation, ex- with one exception, that is that Trump himself, as we saw with uh, with with the North Korean leader, Trump could change, uh, uh, you know, fall in love with uh, Rouhani or something, and and make some kind of concessions that really are make the JCPOA look like a tough deal. That's that's the worry about about the Trump uh, side. But Trump's advisors would probably not let him do that. And that's the difference. The mm-hmm. difference, in my opinion, is not so much the man at the top, but the advisors around the man at the top. And the advisors around Trump are much more, let's say, in sync with the leadership of Israel right now, than the advisors around Biden. You mentioned that also about Iran.
0: Do, 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 do you think Iran will prefer a Trump president opposite them on the negotiating
1: table, or do you think they'll prefer Biden? It's been clear. I mean, the best way to understand Iran's policy is to, to, to hear what they say officially, and then, and then assume the opposite. And officially, they say, we don't care who wins. But yeah. they have really uh, been hoping a Biden victory. In fact, I think we will know that it's a Biden victory when we see them passing around candy in Tehran, because they um, have really been squeezed by uh, by Trump, especially since Trump left the deal, the JCPOA, in 2018. And it's it's um, e- economically and diplomatically, uh, they feel quite quite uh, pressed right now. Uh, I think they're really hoping that Biden wins. So, so something
0: which kind of often gets pushed into the background on US presidential, uh, presidential election day are the Senate and House races. Um, it looks like the Republicans will probably edge the Senate and, and the Democrats will keep the House, albeit with a, a probably a smaller lead. How much should we read into Senate and House races in terms of how they impact on US foreign policy? And, and if, if Biden were to win, um, how much would, would a Republican Senate
1: kind of constrict his ability to, on the kind of Iran approach? Let me take the last one first, because that's a a, a very specific case. If there were, say, a, a JCPOA-2, because of the lessons learned from the Obama JCPOA-1, where they made an executive, uh, he made an executive agreement, it wasn't ratified by Congress. Obama never went to Congress to get approval of the JCPOA, probably because he, he worried that the, that the Senate would not approve it. Um, if it's like a, going to be a treaty ratification, that, that would require a very stringent two-thirds majority of the Senate. But let's say it's not a treaty ratification, but it's some kind of vote in, in, in the Senate. Because the Senate will be, as of now, it looks like it will remain Republican. Not by a lot. But there'll be one or two more Republicans than Democrats, and by the way, there'll be some hardline hawkish Democrats too, especially on Iran and the JCPOA. Just look at the at the at the where the um, Democrats were in the first time around. A lot of them opposed the JCPOA. So yeah. what I'm trying to say to you is that because the Senate is likely to be Republican, it will be a check on any Biden deal with. Iran that gives away too much, say, so to speak, and it will be useful for Biden because it will give him leverage. Mm-hmm. It will give him leverage, just as Rouhani, the current moderate leader, of so-called moderate leader of, of president of Iran, he has leverage by saying, look, if you don't deal with me in the next five, five, six, seven months, I'm going to be out uh, in June, there'll be a new election, and it's very likely that the, the new president will be much more conservative than me and moreover, probably a member, uh, a general in the IRGC. So uh, make a deal with me. So Biden can use this as leverage, but there are two ways that Biden can do this. Biden's team can be smart or they can be not so smart. The smart way is to say, yeah, let's, let's get back to the table. Uh, we, need to, we need to start talking with Iran uh, because iran 's not going to uh, come back and redo a deal just uh, by surrendering that 's not in the uh, that 's not the way Khamenei thinks, and Khamenei is the ruler as long as he 's alive. We have to deal with Khamenei okay that 's the smart way though is you retain the leverage you have with the sanctions you keep the sanctions until you see movement on the iranian side so so that 's the smart way to 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 retain leverage and don't rush to make a deal. Uh, The the team, and of course, Biden has so many other priorities besides doing another JCPOA that this is at the bottom of the list. The the top of the list is the economy and COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but let's stick to this point because I think what Israelis will want to see is A, any deal that any negotiation brings in not only the European three, the E3 and China and Russia, but brings in the the players involved in the Gulf, for instance, brings in Israel, UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. Shouldn't they have a voice in the next deal? Or is Iran just negotiating with uh, countries which are fairly indifferent to the security of the Gulf and fairly indifferent to the security of Israel? So that's number one. Number two, if, there's a rush to, to give concessions, to get the Iranians to the table. That is just a formula for a weak deal. Um, you cannot concede in the front, you've got to be tough. And number, th- the difference between Biden and Trump from the Iranian view is that with Trump, you never know when this guy is gonna blow somebody up like Qasem Soleimani. You never know when Israel uh, the, and when the United States is going to use force. Mm-hmm. You never know when the United States will even provoke a war. But with Biden, you can be pretty sure that the, the Democrats are going to be very reluctant to go to war. You can be pretty sure that the military option is off the table. And then it's just a matter of well, how do we divide Israel's more hawkish policy and UAE's more hawkish policy? How can we divide that from the negotiation that the U.S. will undertake? You know, how can we make it impossible for the Israelis to do a surgical strike on these underground bunkers um, than then by having a negotiation going on, another JCPOA? And that, to me, is gonna be a serious issue because if Iran doesn't believe there's a military option of the U.S. under Biden, Iran is going to, A, continue to do its um, malign uh, influence, i.e. arming Hezbollah and Iraqi popular mobilization units, etc. Uh, and B, they're just going to hold out for a, a, a another sweet deal. The bottom line is that um, I believe from... From Israel's point of view, they may have preferred uh, Trump because momentum on the normalization, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan. There's a certain momentum now that is really very historic, and one would like to see it continue. And whether it will continue uh, with different personnel or whether the momentum will be lost under a Biden administration remains to be seen. But in any event, the fact that the Senate remains Republican gives a certain comfort. Um, now, overall, in foreign policy in general and economic policy, it's also reassuring to um, a lot of, say, investors who worry about too socialist a government, too, too much deficit spending, which would cause inflation. And so I think the the, the markets are, are responding quite well to the fact that there is no blue wave, blue meaning a Democratic sweep of Senate, House, and, pre- and the presidency—it's just going to be, uh, a, like, as you said, a, a majority, but not a big majority of Democrats in the House, uh, a slim majority of Republicans in the Senate, and a Biden White House. Interesting. One of the things
0: which um, which you were hearing maybe a kind couple of weeks ago in Israel was, you know, if Biden did get in, then he, he might come under the influence of this kind of this small, small but kind of growing kind of progressive movement in the Democratic Party. Now that they've been a bit more quiet and they're saying, you know, well, Biden and Bibi actually get on very well and, and they, they will be able to kind of, you know, work together on, on many of the issues. What's your assessment of this kind of this, this maybe shift in, in the
1: kind of the balance of power, not really now, but maybe the next kind of 10, 15 years in the Democratic Party? Don't extrapolate long term. I mean, back in the 60s, I used to ask uh, around, uh, you know, people who, who knew a little bit about the Middle East. I said, how is Israel going to survive given the the disparity in numbers and you know, the answer was technology. Israel was much more advanced and they would find solutions. I think this, this demographic change in the Democratic Party, this growing uh, Hispanic and, and African-American influence in the Democratic Party, this growing progressive influence in the Democratic Party, there are clear changes, but that doesn't translate into uh, a, a fixed view on Israel, provided that Israel adapts to that, and how do they adapt? I don't think progressives feel all that enamored with the Iranian Islamic Republic of Iran, which has been hanging gay men, uh, uh, teenagers even, uh, in the in the hundreds and maybe thousands since the, the revolution. I don't think that that's a particularly progressive policy. I think where the progressives are focused on is the Palestinian case. And Mm. Israel, by normalizing with the UAE, is going to find itself, and then normalizing with Saudi Arabia eventually, if that happens, and other countries, it's going to find itself being pushed on the Palestinian issue to be more moderate and less right-wing or hawkish. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the benefits strategically and economically and culturally, and just in terms of legitimacy uh, of Israel by having relations with the Sunni Arab states, uh, and not just Arab, but Muslim countries, you know, from Indonesia to uh, Mauritania, Mauritania just south of Morocco, Indonesia way off uh, near China. There's a lot of upside here. And so if they have to move on the Palestinian issue, that will have an additional benefit of placating the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Israel must adapt to that issue much more than they have to surrender to uh, the dictates of, of, of Iran. Fascinating. You, you mentioned, obviously, the, the norm, normalization agreements, and,
0: and Trump has really kind of built the momentum, or Trump and his team have built the, the momentum. And you also mentioned that you know, there's, a, there's a fear that with the Biden presidency and his team coming in, that that momentum might kind of wane. Do you think that's the case, or, or do you see kind of countries like Saudi Arabia who might come under pressure from Biden on human rights, or Yemen actually conceding and thinking we can kind of you know push on the Israel front to kind of limit our yeah. kind of U.S. pressure on, on those other issues?
1: Well, one thing's for sure: the impact of Biden has a, a bigger impact on Saudi Arabia than it does on Israel. And why do I say that? Well. First of all, if you look at the money behind Biden's campaign, I bet you a lot of it is from people like Chaim Saban and, and other American Jews who are not, uh, while they may not agree with Netanyahu, they are uh, certainly not uh, anti-Israel. The American view of Saudi Arabia on Biden under a Biden team, first of all, anybody, anybody associated with the Washington Post that is, serves in the Biden administration, or that influences the Biden administration is going to try uh, try to punish MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the prince and heir apparent of uh, Saudi Arabia. He's the son of King Salman, who's getting quite old and will probably not survive a Biden, uh, a Biden presidency. So I worry because, not because I'm uh, against, uh, not because I want to belittle the crime against Jamal Khashoggi. Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and I worked together on my very first paper for the uh, U.S. government, for the Defense Department, on the future of Saudi Arabia, which I wrote in 2002 and 2003, right after 9-11. The person that I went to see to help me on that paper to figure out what the future of Saudi Arabia was, was a guy who was advising Prince Turkey al-Faisal, the then ambassador of Saudi Arabia to the U.K., and that man's name was Jamal Khashoggi. The same man, and I stayed friendly with Jamal all the way to even after he moved to Washington in his last year when he would come through Chatham House in London, and we remained good friends. So look, I feel very, very bad about what happened, but when it comes to relations with country, you have to make sure that you're you're operating not by your passion and your sense of justice, but by your sense of interest. What is the interest of America, is it with Saudi Arabia under the Al Saud family, which is, in my opinion, the the least radical group that could be running that country. Mm-hmm. God forbid, if, if you have these medievalist uh, ISIS types of which there are many in Saudi Arabia. My, my uh, I, have a, I have a Saudi friend of Yemeni background who used to tell me that if you look at ISIS leadership, the, the majority come from Saudi Arabia. So if if those guys take over Saudi Arabia, we'd be in really big trouble. And that's always been my, my starting point. I also always felt that Saudi Arabia and Israel were logical partners because they were both status quo parties that didn't want a kind of, what the technical word is revisionist, but we'll call it revolutionary change. Uh, even before, Uh, the revolution in Iran in 1979. I wrote back in 1974 after the Yom Kippur War that these two countries could become tacit allies, tacit alliances. And of course, that's what we see today, a tacit alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So to make a long story short, I worry about the Biden policy on on Saudi Arabia, assuming that they don't go overboard uh, and, and want to punish Saudi Arabia I think that we could pursue this normalization theme, except it just will be delayed because A, you don't have the personnel. The personnel on the U.S. team, Jared Kushner and and, uh, Avi Berkowitz, and then we have this Ambassador David Friedman, the U.S. Ambassador to to Jerusalem, and Manukin, the Secretary of Treasury, has been working uh, on the sanctions side. Um, You have this enormous, uh, bureaucratic engine, uh, and, and and Mike Pompeo, of course, uh, who have been working the case against Iran. If that team is switched to another team that's focusing on, well, let's see, how do we meet with Foreign Minister Zarif? How do we engage them? What sort of concessions can we make to them? Then you you, you have a different complexion, and normalization is maybe not such a high priority. I think it should be but it may not be the same priority as it was under the Trump team. Finally, Mm -hmm. Trump's style is is, is, sometimes he's criticized for it, but his transactional approach is precisely the way you get to these deals. Uh, It wasn't easy for the UAE to normalize with Israel. It wasn't easy for Bahrain, uh, considered the 14th province of Iran. I mean, Iran thinks Bahrain is theirs. It wasn't easy for, and two thirds of of Bahrain is Shia. So they took enormous risks and they are taking enormous risks. And who does the pushing? Who does the negotiating? Is it Bibi and his national security advisor? I don't think so. I think it's really the team that Trump has. Who will be the people who take over on the Biden team? Well, I hope somebody continues it, but I think it will slow down. And I think that's the biggest negative of the the change. You, you will lose the transaction approach, and you will lose the personnel. One of the other things which, a bit more of a con- continuity, is
0: with Obama, well, from, from Trump to Biden if he does win, is kind of this, this idea of US retrenchment from the region. Do, do, do you think it will continue? And, and if it does, how do you think it will affect allies like Turkey and Russia, and, and maybe even Egypt?
1: I think it's too easy to say retrenchment is going to happen, and that's the end of the story. Retrenchment is something that in theory, it's, it's going to happen. It's the pivot to Asia is 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 in theory what what should happen. It's it's the national defense policy of the United States under the Trump administration to pivot toward uh, China and Asia and the Indo-Pacific. But when it comes to tactical issues, things like deterrence play a very important role. And I don't think Biden so naive to think that. He could just pull out of the Middle East because um, he saw what happened under the uh, Obama administration when, uh, in Syria when, when the United States basically did stand back and stand down and allow uh, the Iranians, Hezbollah, and then later the Russians to come in uh, and fill the vacuum. We also saw that vacuum being created in, in Eastern Syria by, uh, and in Iraq to some extent by Mr. Trump's continued references to uh, these endless wars in the Middle East. Now, I, I think that normalization is a good way to deal with retrenchment. So if the retrenchment continues, what will take its place? And what will take its place of the United States boots on the ground is United States allies working with the United States support diplomatically, economically, militarily, but not U.S. boots, and that means countries like UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, uh, Jordan, the moderate axis can stand up uh, uh, and and fight back against ISIS, against the Turkey-led Muslim Brotherhood axis, uh, and of course against Iran and its proxies. Mm. So that's the optimistic view. The pessimistic view is retrenchment continues and. And not only does Iran and Turkey fill the vacuum, but Russia does, and even China, even China starts coming in in a bigger, bigger way. And that could uh, complicate things for the uh, for our Middle East allies, as well as for us, uh, for the United States.
0: One last question. Um, if there is a changing of the guard, what do you think we can expect from maybe the next kind of Two months of the of the Trump administration as it kind of transitions. Obviously, with Obama, they signed the uh, the ten year defense with Israel, but then they also yeah. beat um, they also abstained from from the UN resolution two three three four settlement. Is there anything yeah. which we could expect from a Trump administration?
1: I, I read an interesting interview that David Friedman did. I think it was in Haaretz, or no, it was in maybe Times of Israel uh, just last week. You probably saw it, and uh, which he says that UN resolution was a real crime. He didn't use the word crime, but he he said it was really dastardly because the Obama team took that action after they were lame duck, after they were clearly uh, ceding power to the uh, incoming president, as you pointed out. I believe it was in December. Mm -hmm. And the election, of course, is in early November. So, he thought that was really outside the bounds. So if, if I read that, I, I think he's boxed himself in because of all, all the people who would wanna push hard these next 10 weeks, and 10 weeks is a long time. It would be Ambassador David Friedman. He would, might, might wanna push on settlements. He might wanna push on um, more sanctions against Iran and, and do it in such a way that there would be no way to return to the JCPOA. And I think one of the things, that uh, people like David Friedman might want to do is how can we instigate Iran into doing something really stupid like blowing up a tanker or killing American soldiers in, in Iraq or even uh, doing something silly in Syria against Israel. You know, you and I, two and a half years ago, did a, uh, did a video cast on, on the Iranian-Israeli conflict which came out of the shadows back in February of 2018 when Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the Al-Quds Force, was plotting how to get qualitative missiles right up to the Golan Heights, how to build a corridor from Iran to Iraq to Syria, all the way to the Golan and to the Mediterranean. Things were really looking bad. There could be a lot of things that that go wrong in the Middle East in, in, in the coming years. Jonathan, that was a really interesting um, podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you to BICOM and thank you to Fathom, Fathom for...